Welcome to Don't Look Now, the podcast with your hosts, Jenny McDonald and Will Hageman, coming to you every Tuesday with our stories of the weird, not so weird, historical, not so historical, aliens, not aliens, I don't know, interesting stuff. So, Jenny, as always, she is the, the keeper of the topic. I am unaware of what we are about to talk about. So, Jenny, what are we, what are we talking about today? Also, like when I'm really bummed, I didn't pick aliens because I've now had three people mention that something about us talking about aliens, and I'm like, I think we've talked about aliens once. <laughs> I need to get. <laughs> it on just that seems page. like we should be talking about aliens, right? I mean, that's you know, right? Damn it. Okay, I'm gonna work on that because people keep mentioning it to me. <laughs> um, instead, I would like to talk about a great American folk story. Ooh. Okay, great American folk story. Midwestern. Mm. Ooh, Midwestern great American folk story. Shoot. That narrows it down. Um, any other hints? <laughs> I mean, I don't know that I counted it as the Midwest. Um, everybody else's version of the Midwest? Yeah, everybody else's version of the Midwest. Yeah. I'm going to that- go with... Um, It's related to a cow. Oh, Mrs. O'Leary and the Chicago, great Chicago fire. There we go. All right. Good deal. All right. Yes. This is for those that are out in the world that aren't from Kansas growing up. I was always told and always thought of Kansas as being the Midwest. When I think of Midwest, it is like Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, Iowa. Like that's, that's the Midwest. And the East Coast version of the Midwest is Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, yeah, Illinois, and that's what their version West is, too. Those people think they're in the Midwest, but it's interesting because there's kind of two Midwests, and it all depends on where you're from. And I've even seen studies on this with you know checking people in different states, like where is the Midwest? Circle it on a map, and it's highly dependent on where you're from. But out here, I've also heard like Colorado as part of the Midwest. Yep. Yeah. I mean, basically, the non mountainous part of Colorado is the Midwest. Right. Denver is a Midwestern city, you know. But I, that's what I think of. But when you go other places, they would say that we're not the Midwest, but we're the plain states. So, you know, you're kind of like, okay, whatever. But anyway, when I think Midwest, I think of all those. The flyover country in the middle of this country, you know, the, st- the flyover country in the middle of the U.S. where I am from, that is, that means the Midwest to me, but yeah. So we've heard the story of Miss O'Leary and her cow because it's supposedly Midwest. Chicago's yeah. what, like 12 hours from us? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. If you're driving, it's a long, long drive. Um, so for those of you that have never heard the folk song, if you will. It was late one night when we were all in bed. Mrs. O'Leary lit a lantern in the shed. Her cow kicked it over and then winked her eye and said, there'll be a hot time in the old town tonight. <laughs> so times. question is, do you think the cow kicked over a lantern? I do not, but I have 
I've been to Chicago a decent number of times and everybody likes to talk about the Chicago fire, especially when you're like drive going on all the various boat tours around downtown Chicago. They like to bring up the stars on the flag and the Chicago fire and the world's fairs and the fort fire and all that good stuff. But I'm betting it wasn't a cow. (laughs) Just saying. So I'm going to talk to you today about the cultural history of the great fire versus the fireman's version of the great fire. Because I found two really great sources for this. Nice. So Mrs. O'Leary, Catherine O'Leary, basically there is no like photographic record of her because she did not become well ingrained into the cultural memory until after this event. So prior to that, there's also no known photographs of her. Um, And people were not kind to this woman at all. So just cutting to the chase, Chicago catches on fire. Um, It's two days of fires in October of 1871 more than 2,000 acres of Chicago burned and reporters start appearing on Mrs. O'Leary's doorstep. And she is not giving a lot of interviews. Yeah. So the reporters start filling in their opinions. So they say things like she's shiftless and worthless. She's a drunken old hag with dirty hands. These (laughs) things are published in the papers at the time. Uh, supposedly her husband sick their dogs on them and hurled bricks at their heads. At one point, P.T. Barnum was supposed to have knocked on her front door and asked her to tour with his circus. And she supposedly chased him away with a broomstick. Not going to lie. I probably would have as well, sister. <laughs> yeah, it always, whether it is or not, it always definitely seemed like your, your nice 1800s anti-Irish propaganda with Mrs. O'Leary and her cow. But yeah, you know, it's like, well, okay, them so damn drunk Irishman that started this whole thing. But yeah, the whole damn story is ridiculous, right? Why the yeah. hell was she up at late in the middle of the night lighting a lantern in a shed with a cow? <laughs> what the hell? So that's what you do. Right. So she um, ends up after 24 years of being like the person that they blamed the Chicago fire on dies of pneumonia and her neighbors swear to God, the true reason that she died of died wasn't because of pneumonia. It was because she died of a broken heart for how she was treated and how much she hurt for what had happened. So that's setting the stage for you. All right. So it's the night of October 8th and There are flames that are first sparking in the barn next to the family cottage on Decavin Street. And Mrs. O'Leary is reportedly by her, reported by her, to be Mm -hmm. at home in bed asleep. The blaze then travels in northeast and it burns through the shanties and the sheds, which should just tell you right here and now the quality of building for the poor (laughs) in this area. Yeah. Right. Building codes did not exist. Um, so the heat is super fierce, so much so that the firemen would have to hold their hoses only when they were shielded by a door. So they had to be shielded from the flames to be able to try to put out the fire. Um, and the fireman, Charles Anderson, uh, I'm sorry, says that his hat curled on his head from the heat, 
All spare engines uh, were called to the growing fire and prompting one fire marshal to ask another, where's the fire gone to? And another response is, she's gone to hell and gone, because <laughs> that is exactly the kind of attitude that I would expect firemen to have in this moment. <laughs> and then residents start to notice that the wind starts blowing because it's Chicago and they have a shit ton of wind. But this wind starts whipping the flames into great walls of fire that are more than 100 feet high. And this is an actual meteorological phenomenon called a convection whirl. And masses of overheated air rising from the flames begin to spin violently upon con contact with cooler surrounding air. So the wind's blowing like a hurricane and howling, uh, like described as howling like a myriad of various spirits. And um, someone describes it as it's like the spirits are being driven to the flames with fearsome force um, that you can't describe. Like, it's just so intense. So the wind never exceeds 30 miles per hour, but these little fire devils pushed flames forward and across the city. By early morning on October 10th, the rain extinguished the last glowing embers and the city was pretty much ravaged. So they generally kind of burn from outward in toward the lake is that because you say northwest i generally think of that's where you know lake michigan is so i'm going to say yes because i have no frame of reference I mean, okay, yeah i've never i've never actually seen a map of where the fire actually happened and you know because it's chicago but chicago is big enough that i always kind of wonder where exactly in chicago got burned out and you know some it was most of chicago but i don't really know where chicago was then so yeah, it was the west side, but I don't know, like, how much of Chicago would have been Chicago. Like, the Chicago we have now is Chicago, but, like, how yep. much was Chicago? Yep, I'm going to I'm going to find a map and post that on our little thing for this thing. To see that would be good. Where all the great fire burned up. But, yeah, cool. Thank you. That's great. Because I always delete <laughs> the pictures when I'm looking. <laughs> yeah, I need, I need a picture because I have no idea. Um, so... By early morning on Tuesday, October 10th, the rain has extinguished the fire and the city is just burned to the ground. Basically, there is $200 million worth of property destroyed. 300 people died and 100,000 people, which is one third of the city population, was left homeless. Um, the Chicago Tribune compares the damage to that of Moscow after Napoleon's siege in 1812. <laughs> so it's interesting how, you know, comparisons get made at different times like you know what is your what is your comparison point and things change no one compares anything to post-napoleonic moscow anymore i mean this would have been like 50 years after napoleon yeah i mean that's what's interesting with these things is you know to be like comparison comparing something to you know world war ii or later now so you'd be like yeah okay you know right Looked like it's a bombed like out Berlin, about, but yeah, you, you know. know, it's like it was ravaged as though Attila the Hun had just been through. Like we don't yep. talk about shit like that anymore. Yep. It's probably considered racist, actually. <laughs> yeah, no, that was that was something that I, you know, it's an aside, but that's what we do here. I, I'd read a while back because somebody had asked the question, "Well, what did everybody used to use as the benchmark for evil back before Hitler?" Because now it's like you know everything gets compared to Hitler, but back before. The rise of the Nazis, what was the standard, like, you know, you're worse than blank kind of thing that everybody would throw into an argument to, like, try to smear somebody. And there was an interesting discussion about that various was it times. Jews? It was the Jews, wasn't it? Yeah, parts of it was far more regional 
There wasn't oh, okay. kind of a nice worldwide thing. It all depended on kind of where you were. And it, some people were going back to Genghis Khan and stuff still. It was kind of like, you know, you're worse than the damn Mongols. But yeah, you know, it all depend on where you were from and who you got ravaged by. Well, that's like the great question of when is it grave robbing and when is it archaeology? Yeah. I 100% just would like to say it's all about intent. <laughs> True. Right. Are you Burke and Herring it or are you trying to do science? <laughs> I, yeah. Now, definitions of sciences, you know, yeah, yeah. Yes, but if you, you could convince the majority of scientists you're doing science, then you're probably legitimately doing science. Correct. You know, it's not just a, hey, just for science, I'm going to dig this person up and drink something out of their skull. Yeah. Okay. You know, please don't do that. That feels really bad. Like whenever they open things and they're like, we could still eat it. Like at steamboat Arabia, when they're like, yeah, these pickles <laughs> were good enough. We just chomped on one. I'm like, mm, please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds like a good way to die a horrible death, but yeah. 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 I don't want to be this person, but I'm this person. Please don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah. I guess I was thinking of the whole Nostradamus and like, Ooh, horrible things happen. If you drink out of the skull of Nostradamus, I'm like, who the hell drinks out of skulls? Like it's actually quite common. Yes, apparently it is. And it seems insane. But yeah. That's because we don't actively, you know, engage in cannibalism. Well, yeah. I mean, if you want to start doing that on your weekends, we might need to renegotiate some of our friendship. But <laughs> We also tend to, you know, bury our dead and get them out of the way as opposed to giant necropolises like, you know, the catacombs of Paris and stuff. So there just aren't a lot of skulls sitting around. That's very true. That's very true. I have a lot that I could say on this subject. I don't know. <laughs> For another time. All right. I know. I'm like, I'm sitting here and I'm like, Jen, do you want to get into this? Because you sound crazy when you get started. So back to the right. uh, fire in okay. Chicago. Fire. Yeah. Okay. So there's all this damage. Everything's destroyed, except for something really interesting. Mrs. O'Leary's house didn't burn down. Ah, so there, there you have it. That's why everybody scapegoated her. Huh? Right. So prior to the fire, nobody took notice of Patrick and Catherine O'Leary. They were two Irish immigrants who lived with their five children on the city's west side. He was a laborer and she sold milk from door to door. Um, and she kept five cows in a barn. Now, I just want to stop here and point out once again, how weird is it that they had five cows in the tenements in the city? Yeah, because I'd never really thought about where they were. I just, you know, when you hear about Mrs. O'Leary's cow, I assumed it was some farm outside of town or something, not, you know, part of the tenements on the west side of Chicago. I mean, it makes sense, but yeah. I know. Weird. It's a, and how tight that's, that must be. Like, how on earth did they care for animals yeah, in that tight of space? I guess that's what you had. I mean, I guess they're, you know, you didn't, if you wanted milk, you had cows. I guess, you know, they're, right. It was well, just I livestock mean, on top of people all the time back then. So, it's so weird to think about that because you don't think about the fact that like they were actively using horse and carriage still at this time. So like yep. they would have had Every to keep horses out there somewhere yeah. too. Yeah. Everybody would have had horses around. There would have been tons of stables. There'd be room for animals. There'd be, there would be animal shit everywhere. So yeah. Yeah. That's something I've actually read about is like the animal poo in, in these towns was worse than anything else. Like, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you know, I've been near stockyards and I can imagine that basically some of these cities would have just smelled like a stockyard, but yeah. Yeah. And they didn't have air conditioning. Oh. 
But I'm, I'm just going to say, if her farm was still standing, isn't that by definition the fact that the fire didn't start there? Because if it started in her barn, it would have burned her barn down. I said her house. I didn't say her uh, barn. Okay. All right. All right. Right. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. Before the fire burned out on the city's northern edges, the Chicago Evening Journal was like, huh, it's real interesting that the fire started on the corner of DeCoven and 12th Streets at 9 o'clock on Sunday evening. And it was at this point that they said that the reason why was that at nine o'clock on a Sunday evening, while everyone was in bed, a cow kicked over a lamp in a stable where a woman was milking the cow. Now, I don't know if you know much about dairy farming, Will. Some, but not a lot. Most people don't milk their cows at nine o'clock at night. Yeah, it's, it's a morning activity, but yeah. So apparently... This story actually originated from kids playing in the neighborhood. (laughs) They're a reliable source. Yeah. So um, following and jumping on the bandwagon, a bunch of other articles follow. And these articles, of course, perpetuate that ethnic stereotyping and like really try to grab onto the fear of Chicago's growing immigrant population. Um. The Chicago Times depicts the 44-year-old Catherine as an old Irish woman who was bent almost double with the weight of years of toil, trouble, and privation. <laughs> they Which... conclude she set the fire on purpose. Yeah. Do these things sting as somebody who is now 45? And you're like, you yeah. some decrepit old woman who can't even stand at 44. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's when you're like, yep, I understand that. That poor woman. Yep. So there's an inquiry held by the Board of Police and Fire Commissioners to determine what actually caused the fire. And she testifies she went to bed uh, between 8 and 8.30 because they did not have electricity. Yeah. They were using candles. People were in bed when it was dark. Um, and that her husband came and woke her up at some point saying the barn is on fire. At this point, she runs outside, sees it for herself and watches as dozens of neighbors work to save the adjacent homes. That's what makes you remember that like the houses were like on top of each other. This barn was in the middle of the city. (sighs) So contradictory to what my brain wants to think of with farm animals. So the neighbors set out to try to save the homes and um, she and her husband filled wash tubs from the fire hydrants and were running back and forth with them. Um, One of the neighbors had thrown a party at some point during the night. So Mrs. O'Leary remembers hearing the fiddle music as she got ready for bed. um, And someone mentioned to her that someone from this party had got from this gathering had wandered away and had slid into the barn. And she said, Um, There was a man in my barn milking my cows. I couldn't tell. I couldn't see it. It was dark. So at this point, they're like, oh, so there's the man that we should be talking to. So they find the suspect by the name of Daniel Sullivan, and he lived directly across the street from the O'Leary's. He was the one that had alerted Mr. O'Leary to the fire. His name is Peg Leg Sullivan. (laughs) Ah, the good old days when you had Peg Leg Sullivan. Yeah. Jesus Christ. So (laughs) he had attended this party and left at about half past nine. And he steps into the street and he sees a fire in the barn. He runs across the street yelling fire, 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 and then runs straight to the barn thinking I might be able to get the cows out. 
Um, he said he knew a horse could not got up, be gotten out of a fire unless you blind them, but he didn't know if cows could. So he tried to get the cows out. He knew there were four ties at the end. So he made the cows loose as quick as possible. He got two of them loose, but it was so hot. He couldn't get the rest out. So he got what he could. After nine days and questioning 50 people, testimony that made up more than um, 1,100 written pages, board members issue an inconclusive report about the fire's cause. So they don't know whether it originated from a spark blown from a chimney, um, because remember, it was a windy night. Whether it was set on purpose, no idea. However, damage was already done. Mrs. O'Leary remained culpable in the public's eyes. So at the point, though, Nobody was asking obvious questions about her innocence, such as why would she leave the barn after setting it on fire and go back to her home? Why wouldn't she ask for help? Why would she risk her cows and her barn and her home without any, she was in bed. Like, why would she do that? No one was asking this question, right? Yeah. And one of her sons, the name James, was two years old at the time of the fire, and he had grown up known as Big Jim O'Leary. He was a notorious saloon proprietor and gambling kingpin. I would like to point out that based on his upbringing, he didn't have a lot of choices in life. I can't imagine many people would hire Jim O'Leary after his mother burned down half the city. True. Allegedly. Right? (laughs) Allegedly. All right. Allegedly. Allegedly. Over the years, he granted a bunch of newspaper interviews complaining that that musty old fake about the cow kicking over the lance gets him hot under the collar. So he was pissed off about it. He constantly said that the fire was caused by a spontaneous combustion of the green hay. um, And large quantities of that had been delivered the night of the fire. I'm sure as a two-year-old growing up in that family, he had 20 some extra years with his mother before she died where she was constantly trying to figure out how the hell this fire was started. Poor woman. Um, By the summer of 1871 had been a really big heat wave in Chicago and the temperatures were extending into the fall. So it's possible that the hay was thoroughly dry before it was actually stored. So probably not likely that that was what happened, but that was what he claimed happened. So Patrick and Catherine sell their cottage onto Coven Street in 1879 and move a bunch of times. Can't once again, yeah. I can't imagine why. Um, and eventually settle in South Halsted Street on the then far side. And then in 1894, the year before Catherine died, her physician said what she'd always refused to do and gives a comment to the press. So The physician says it'd be impossible for me to describe to you the grief and indignation by which Mrs. O'Leary's views the place has been assigned in her history, that she is regarded as the cause or even accidentally of the great Chicago fire and is the grief of her life. She is shocked at the levity at which the subject is treated and at the satirical use of her name and connection with it. She admits no reporters to her presence and she's determined that whatever ridicule history may heap to her will have to do it without the aid of her likeness. (laughs) Um, many are the devices that have been tried to procure a picture of her but she's been too sharp for any of them no cartoon will ever make sport of her features she has not a likeness in the world and will never have one this woman (sighs) can you imagine it's just very sad yeah 
So the odds of her intentionally setting the fire seem absolutely zero to me. Yeah. So here's the stuff, the side of the story from the fire department. So before the great fire, Chicago, 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 uh, was the fastest growing city in the Midwest. And the growth was fueled in part by Chicago serving as a hub for railroads. A group of nine railroads created the Union Stockyards in 1865, and the stockyards then created the meatpacking industry. Yep. So the city's rapid growth from 1840 to 1870 increased, of course, the population from about 4,500 people to 300,000 people. And because they had a shit ton of people just suddenly appear in a 30-year span, the housing in the area was not up to par because they just didn't have housing. So they just threw together construction of housing very quickly, which means cheap, shitty, lots of it. Yeah. Very close together, right? So it's mostly wood, really crappily built. Um, everything was built of wood that had been harvested from the great white pine forest in Wisconsin and Michigan. Even the sidewalks and streets were paved with wood planks. Hmm. That's going to be a problem. Right. Every once in a while, I think of how weird it is that they use so much wood for stuff like that. Yeah. You know, you're not going to have a good time with fire when your streets are flammable, but yeah. Right. Yeah. No wonder the dang fire spreads so quickly. Dry wood everywhere. So in 1845, the city created fire limits to curb the spread of fires. Fire limits work like a hybrid uh, build and zoning code designed to prevent the rapid spread of fire from building to building. And then 1861 rolls around and the administration of the fire limits had moved from the city council to the board of public works. Um, But they continually got requests for exemptions and they almost always approved the exemptions (laughs) because money. Um, so the fire department starts requesting more firefighters, more fire hydrants, and they created a fire inspection union. However, they were constantly battling with elected officials who were afraid that by hiring people and bringing in more fire hydrants and creating a fire inspection unit, that raising taxes would inhibit the growth of Chicago. Nobody wants to move to a town where they're being taxed. So they were just as quick getting you know, denials to do these things. So 1871, the downtown business district was the only area of the city protected by fire limits. These fire limits required new buildings to be built of brick, um, but did not require the removal of existing wooden construction. Okay. So anything before that was still okay. So Chicago established their first paid fire department in 1858. By 1866, the fire department was 120 paid members, 125 volunteers, 11 steamers, two hand-powered engines, and one hook and ladder, and 13 hose carts. Uh, Water towers weren't added until 1870. So not much longer, um, 1871, when the fire breaks out, the fire department consisted of 216 firefighters operating 17 engines. Paid firefighters generally worked continuously, going home only for meals and a day off every 10 days. Wow. Right. So 1871, it's hot as shit. Um, it's been a hot, dry summer. The fire department had been responding to an average of two fires per day. On October 7th, they fought a large fire for 18 hours. They were exhausted and three engines were out of service from the call. 
So we've already lost three of the 17 fire engines, right? Yeah. Um, and the first alarms were transmitted then at 9.30 p.m. First alarm companies were immediately overwhelmed and general alarm was sounded. But by then it was already too late. Due to the drought with the high wind, the fire was pushing from north to east. Two hours later, it was reported the fire had jumped the Chicago River. Um, the fire had already destroyed 32 blocks and bridges linking the north and south sides of the city. Because, of course, the bridges were also made out of what? <laughs> Wood. There you go. Wood everywhere. Um, and f- flying firebrands ignited the city's waterworks works building. <laughs> so <laughs> when that happened, of course, the building goes up within minutes. It's totally destroyed and it shuts down water mains. So they can't even pump water to get to the fire. So Chicago fire was ultimately nine separate fires ignited by these um, flying devils. And by morning, the nine fires had converged into one. And the fire was eventually contained by vacant lots that served as natural fire breaks and demolition of the path of the fire. And then the rain, like I said, the fire consumed an area of the city that is four miles long and three quarters of a mile wide. Chicago at the time was six miles long and two miles wide. Yeah. It was like most of it. Yeah. I was just trying to look at maps real quick, but we were looking at this and yeah, I don't know my Chicago super well, but it looked like it basically started there a little bit West of the river, kind of South of where the Sears tower is. So go maybe half mile south, half mile west, and then it kind of burned on across the river from there through toward Navy Pier and then on north. So there you go. It's wild to think of it jumping a river, right? Yep. (laughs) That water source was not enough. Yeah. A lot of of firebrands in the air, guys. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. So immediately after the fire, Chicago starts to take steps to protect the survivors and begin rebuilding. Um, nationally they responded of course to the reconstruction of chicago as well but some of the smaller insurance companies could not pay claims (laughs) and then the larger ones were able to they just made it difficult for people right yeah um many of the country's cities donated money and supplies to help rebuild despite the fact that the city had just burned down yeah totally pain in the ass right um they did not actually fix the fire limits until after the next big fire in 1874 (laughs) when the fire destroyed 47 acres and 812 homes it uh, consumed an area south of this 1871 fire so whatever wasn't hit in the first fire was wiped out in the second fire basically um and it's interesting because what was coincidence maybe uh the weather conditions were almost identical so it was yeah. a warm dry summer uh wind out of the southwest similar situation nice so the extension of the fire limits finally came about because the insurance industry was like you have to do something we can't pay out again we are broke what insurance running the country <laughs> well well um the National Board of Fire Underwriters demanded that Chicago reorganize the fire department, increase the size of the water mains, and ban all wooden construction within city limits. Moreover, insurance companies were told to refuse to do business in Chicago until these demands were met. 
<laughs> the inability to insure properties moved the city council to respond despite the fact that they didn't want to because they thought it would raise taxes. <laughs> so it's still pretty important, the Chicago fire to Chicago. Um, in an interesting twist of fate, in the mid-1950s, the Chicago Fire Department built its first fire academy on what? Yes, that's correct. The site of the oh, O'Leary's nice. barn. There you go. I'm sure that was not random happenstance. It could not have been. Could not have been. Um, so at this point in time, moving forward, this was actually a really good thing that they learned about fire codes and fire limits and trying to uh, build in such a way that fire breaks would happen. As a result, the fire limits um, are actually being reduced because they're pretty outdated because now there's a lot more lightweight wood frame apartment buildings um, that have more fire stops within them versus okay. all wood construction of dry hardwood that burned and got hot real fast. Okay. So, I don't know. Maybe it's okay. <laughs> you know most of these big apartment buildings have pretty good fire suppression systems i'm just a pessimist i feel like if you had two giant fires in two years i don't know maybe it's possible <laughs> you never know so let's go down a rabbit hole let's talk about fire the ancient <laughs> greeks started fires with concentrated sunlight they would use a parabolic mirror and use that to ignite the Olympic torch. Nice. I did not did not know the torch was lit with sunlight. That's a, it's pretty cool, right? That is cool. Now, I would like to state that I am terrified of things catching on fire as a result of light refraction. So, like, you know, when people put those little crystals in their car, yeah, I'm always afraid that light's going to refract through it and burn somebody's chair. Now, there's probably, like, shades on the window like don't they put like sunblock or something on it yeah i mean there's enough there's enough that's reflected back from the glass i'm pretty sure it's not heavy sunlight <laughs> still who knows I, I don't know it freaks me I, out yeah i mean i used to used to do little demonstrations for the physics department when i was a student for you know open house and we had a guy that had a you know three foot wide lens that we would go out and use to melt pennies so you could right. take the thing out onto the sidewalk and slag pennies so people could give you a penny you could basically completely liquefy it and then cool it off and give it back to them that was always that was always fun until the one time we did that with some newish concrete and there was still some water in it that popped and you know sent molten copper spraying all over us which was not the most fun <laughs> I was going to say, this feels like uh, something they don't do anymore, Will. I can't imagine Yeah, yeah. Why. So, uh, but if you're ever at Cardwell and you look at the the handicapped access ramp, which was the new concrete at the time, there's a little pit on top of it. And that is where we accidentally blew up a bunch of copper. So, oops. Yeah, good stuff. Accidentally. So at least, you know, you know I, I now have a, a lingering mark on campus from something I did as an undergraduate. I blew a pit in the top of the handicapped access ramp at Cardwell Hall. So. I feel like I want someone to go on a campus tour and be like, yeah. And um, today one of our professors left his mark as an undergraduate and as yeah. part of the family of the university, there you go. he's still here today. We didn't like get rid of him. Yeah. 
maybe I should just go sign it. That'd be exciting. Perfect. I'm sure they'd love that. But it could be part of that underground uh, scavenger hunt. It's fine. Yeah. I was going to say the other thing that I remember, you know, as a kid, of course, I don't know if it's mostly a male thing or not, but there's, there's a certain firebug streak that seems to basically show up at a certain age. And I remember the greatest thing was, you know, my dad was a smoker back then, but he had a solar lighter. So it was basically Boy. a parabolic mirror that had a little holder that you could like put the cigarette on. And then if you pointed it at the sun, it would focus the light right at the tip of the cigarette and light it for you, which was the greatest thing ever. So I was using that to, you know, set all kinds of things on fire, but good times. I mean, I can't say much the like month that my parents moved into their house that they live in now. I think I tried to catch it on fire four times accidentally, (laughs) accidentally, but like we had built a fire because it was our first time having a fireplace with the wood in it. And I didn't know how to do it properly. (laughs) I just threw a bunch of wood in and lit it. And then it caught our rug on fire. So until mom had that rug replaced, she always had a little tiny area rug in front of that fire. (laughs) Sorry, mom. Love you. Yep. Yep. Good stuff. Um, okay. The Library of Alexandria was part of the compound at Alexandria, um, had a half a million scrolls from Assyria, Greece, Persia, Egypt, and India, and people from all around the globe would travel there to study. Um, but of course, <laughs> there was a fire. So, uh, The claims at the time were that Julius Caesar started the blaze when he set his ships on fire in the harbor while trying to get control of the city in 48 BC. Um, It's thought that a branch of the library survived only to be destroyed in 391 AD by the the bishop of Alexandria and his Christian followers. Oops. That's like one of those fires that every librarian will cry about if you remind them it existed ever. (laughs) Another big old fire was the uh, Great Fire of London. So this one was during the Black Plague. It destroyed 1,300 homes, leaving 100,000 people homeless. Um, It gutted the majority of the medieval city and damaged iconic buildings like St. Paul's Cathedral. Rebuilding took 30 years, um, but it's still like the planning you can still see because the city was rebuilt with stone buildings and had wider streets, uh, which replaced the narrow alleys and wooden structures that had previously burned out the city. Uh, Two cool things that came as a result of the great fire of London, property insurance and fire (laughs) brigades. There you go. (laughs) Um, Another fun fire of the 1800s is from the great fire of 1835 in New York. It occurred in the midst of a cholera epidemic. Oh, nice. There's a theme here. (laughs) This was in New York City. Um, So a downtown warehouse caught on fire. There were strong winds. El Nino year, maybe. I don't know. Um, It leveled 17 city blocks and set part of the frozen East River on fire because turpentine leaked from storehouses into the water. The city could not slow down the destruction. Um, The population had grown 60% and there was no water basically. So like sanitation and water, which is what caused the cholera epidemic. 
caused issues. Um, yeah, that's that's even that's one up in Cleveland there when you set a frozen river on fire. Right. Just keep doing the things. Um, and then finally, I don't know if you've heard of the shirt, the triangle shirt waste factory fire. Yeah, that's horrifying. Oh, my God. Right. So if you've never heard of this, I encourage you to look into it. It's a terrifically horrible story. So essentially, a bunch of young women and immigrants worked at this shirt waste factory where the triangle shirt waste factory where they make clothing but to make sure that they were working as long as they had to work and um, under really shitty conditions where they couldn't take a break, they locked them in the workrooms. Then of course the factory catches on fire and 146 women and immigrants, immigrant males were trapped inside the building and burned to death. Yeah. Yeah. That one's just horrifying, but they That's why you got fire codes now. So, you know. Yeah. They either died from um, the fire or from jumping out of the building, which was like crazy tall as well. I mean, those were the other. Yeah. Um, so we did get workplace safety laws out of that. So um, one of the people involved in that became Franklin Roosevelt's secretary of labor during the new deal and helped transform the landscape of work in America. I mean, I guess at least we were learning as we were doing these things. Yeah. I don't feel like that happens anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> no. Now disasters happen and we just go, well, that sucked. And then we just keep doing it. So, you know. Right. So, yeah, that's that's my fire story for the day. All right. Nice. Yeah. And no, I fire that I remember somehow, like as a kid, I, I, I you know, traumatized myself because I watched some special on the Coconut Grove fire, which is basically a a nightclub fire that happened in the what, 20s or 30s and mm. yeah another horrifying sort of event but you know watched that at probably too young an age and then i was terrified of fires for a really long time so but yet it didn't stop you from playing with fire well no i mean that's that's totally different <laughs> it's fine you were safe yeah you know i didn't i didn't burn myself it's all good I didn't burn any houses down or anything else. So, you know, that's good. Oh, goodness. Ah, well, cool. Well, yeah, no, thanks for that. It's interesting stuff. You know, I, yeah. Cause I always think of the O'Leary thing is, is doesn't feel like a real person. You just kind of hear the, you know, the rhymes and the whatever. Oh, Mrs. O'Leary's cow. Ha 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 ha. And yeah. yeah, there's no, there's no inkling of a real person that had their life destroyed over this. I remember being absolutely baffled by this story as a young child. As, as that being the cause of the fire. First off, why were we talking about this when I was like eight? But second off, like, yeah. what? <laughs> but I knew that too. I mean, I think it's just one of those things. I almost think that like, I think back then everybody kind of had this shared knowledge through Warner Brothers cartoons and whatever, every Bugs Bunny cartoon and whatever. At some point there'd be some cow kicking a, kicking a lantern over and starting a fire. And then, you know, you just kind of remember these random things that, we're all made out of cartoons that were like 50 years old or something. And therefore you were all up on the pop culture of 50 years before that. And I don't know if you remember social studies books from the eighties and nineties. Yep. They had the most random history that they could have picked to focus on. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah no the worst was we we found uh amy's mom has her you know history book that she had in school in you know the 50s and okay. it's it's oh god it's horrifying yeah yeah it was had, had the the many black slaves happily working in the fields and you're just like oh my Lord. god like this was this was the school textbook oh jesus you but, know yep i i remember being really impressed in college when i took a class with someone who wrote a textbook and then i took their class and i thought oh my god this person doesn't know anything <laughs> and now i'm just like suspicious yeah of full textbooks written by like one person yeah when when you have like a chapter in a textbook it seems to go well yeah when you were the sole proprietor of the entire thing, yeah, maybe not. It's time for me to write a textbook. I think that's what I need to do now. It's time to write a circuits book. Maybe not. And I can say book. anything I want. I can make circuits anything that I want them to be. You know. I feel like there would be a random, like in the midst of every chapter, just like tangent about something not related. Yeah, I think that would be but, fun to do. Just put in a paragraph that has nothing to do with anything else and see if anybody ever notices. I think that's the way to do it because I think, you know, one out of a hundred students ever actually look at the book, you know, I, I think the more technical your degree, the less likely you are to have a textbook that goes with it. Yeah. But the interesting thing is when you do have a textbook, no one looks at it for some reason. I mean, everybody is like, doesn't know how to do a thing and it doesn't even occur to them to ever look at the book. Like, They'll look through lecture slides, they'll do whatever, but they'll never be like, oh, there is a textbook that has been made that is all about this. Maybe I should go look and see if it describes how to do this. That doesn't seem to ever. You know what? I had a textbook for one of my math classes and I swear to God, it was the biggest waste of money because I didn't understand it. Yeah. And I would go to my professor and be like, I don't understand what it's saying. And he'd be like, I don't understand why you don't understand it. It's written right here. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah. What does that mean, though? No, oh, I've been there. I, especially in physics, there were ones that there are these books that everybody has, and they're usually great reference books, but they're not great learning books. books. It's like if you already know how to do this, this is a great thing to look back something back up and like refresh yourself on how to do it. But it is not a good way to learn it. But I think what we're learning is that people are very visual learners, visual and auditory at the same time, right? So like if I can find a YouTube video of someone showing me how to do it over and over, you might get it. Yep. Now I, you know, I drag my way through the textbook and so I had to go learn everything. (laughs) It's like I I had these classes, you know, 20 years ago. So if I'm going to have to teach something for the first time, it's like, well, guess I got to read the textbook, figure it out. So, you know. But yeah, you learn it by actually doing the work. Like when you read through it, you're like, okay, okay. then you get to the problem and then you actually like work on the problems until you can figure out how to do them and relate it back. Like, oh yeah, this works this way. This works that way. Oh, okay. You know, that's where you actually figure out what the heck is going on. But yeah, good times. No, textbooks, check them out. Yeah. (laughs) Textbooks. It's like the syllabus. Read it. Yep, exactly. It's right there next to the syllabus. The things that nobody ever, ever looks at, you know. The number of professors I've heard that are like, just it's in the syllabus. Like with that, I have to write it anyway. Could you please pretend to just read it? This is why we have to go over them on the first day of every semester. (laughs) Yeah, my favorite thing recently was, I I don't remember where it was. It got fairly viral with the professor that basically 
put in their syllabus a, you know, basically guide to hidden treasure. It was like, okay, if you go to this locker and use this code, you can open it up and get the secret thing. And it was like 50 bucks or something. And it always went unclaimed because no one ever read the syllabus and saw the statement that you could go find cool stuff. So the number of students that I had as a TA that didn't know their professor's name blew my mind. It's in the <laughs> syllabus. It's on Canvas. What do you mean you don't know their name? Well, I don't know their name. What? Rando person. Weird random psycho that's talking all the time up front. Yeah. I know. I was like, you didn't research this professor obsessively before you took <laughs> their class? What is wrong with you? <laughs> hey, there different types of people out there for sure so but cool yeah no thanks for the stories good stuff good to know yeah because i've always heard of the great chicago fire but i have no idea you know where it actually started what really happens what the truth was behind mrs o'leary and the cow because it always seemed like a fake thing to me because i guess i always thought it was on a farm and i'm like how the hell would a farm in the middle of nowhere cause the great chicago fire and now i'm like oh well at least at least it's in the middle of a slum okay all right i get it yeah like but, that, uh, that makes sense. That makes more sense. <laughs> but yeah. But yeah, no. Right. Cool. Well, thanks everybody for listening this week. As always, you know, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, grow our glorious podcast, and uh, we will see you all in a week. Bye-bye. Bye bye.